We're going to read Matthew chapter 7, verses 7 through 11 today. Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and the one who knocks it will be opened. Or which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? And Lord God, we thank you that we can come today and worship and witness those who have been baptized today and professing their faith in Christ. We thank you, Lord, that we can pray. Thank you, Lord, that you hear us. Lord, we ask now as we open up your word and we think deep thoughts about what you have said, that you would lead us to think your thoughts after you, that you would lead us in your wisdom, that you would lead us in your, in your strength, Lord, that you would cause us to grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We pray in his name, amen. Relationships are sometimes the most difficult things in life. And as always, people are the problem. That Jesus has a solution. Now so far in the Sermon on the Mount, what I like to call the best sermon ever by the best preacher ever, Jesus has described a Christian's character in the Beatitudes, their influence as salt and light, their righteousness, which comes through faith in Christ and not by works. And he has shown a believer's devotion and ambition in chapter 6. And now in chapter 7, he puts the focus on relationships. The counterculture that Jesus is developing is not individualistic. It is a community thing. And relationships within the community and with others are of utmost importance to God. Believers first have a relationship with God through faith in Christ, as well as to their brothers and sisters in Christ as members of God's family, and then to everyone else as well. And each relationship affects the others. Now Jesus' words nearing the end of the Sermon on the Mount give us another glimpse into the way that God does things and the way that he wants things to be done. He shows us that relationships don't have to be as hard as we make them. He shows us that the way to love others appropriately is to seek God continually. The way to love others most appropriately is to seek God all the time. In other words, when we seek God continually, we love others appropriately, and we are able then to receive God's blessings, thankfully. And that's the idea behind these verses we're looking at today, Matthew 7, verses 7 through 11. And it's an idea that relates in some way to almost everything we do in life. Now, this is another passage that is often airlifted out of its context and misapplied or misdirected into getting what we want selfishly rather than wanting whatever will glorify God the most. 
Jesus is speaking of prayer in these short verses, in the context of healthy relationships with God and other people. Now, it's easy to think of prayer as something that's isolated from the rest of life, isn't it? But prayer is something that ought to affect all of our relationships because we need God's help to have healthy ones. Every one of us struggles in some way in life with our relationships with other people. And maybe even with your relationship with God. Some of us struggle with most of our relationships with people. And I'm not making eye contact with anyone in particular right now. But what Jesus says here is closely tied to what he has already said about prayer in the Sermon on the Mount. You'll remember chapter 6, starting at verse 5, when Jesus says, when you pray, he assumes that believers will pray. And that when you do, you're not to be fake. You're not to do it so people will hear you or that you will sound good. You're to do it to connect with God. You're to do it to pour your, out, pour your heart out to God. And, and he gave a model prayer, the Lord's Prayer, where, where believers uh, say to God, Look, God, you are in charge. You are great. We love you. And we want whatever you want. And we're laying our needs before you as well. Now, what Jesus says in these verses also connect very closely to what he just said in the verses preceding. In chapter 7, verses 1 through 6. The idea, the instructions he gives about not judging other people wrongly. That's in verses 1 through 5. And the first part of verse 5. But the instructions of exercising wise discernment and evaluation uh, in verses 5 and 6. It's the idea of wise versus unwise judgment calls. It also connects very closely to what he's going to say next. What is known as the golden rule in, in Matthew 7 and verse 12. Doing to others what you want done to you. If only we could remember that. Now, the first thing we see in this passage is that Jesus, having told his followers how difficult it will be, agreeing how difficult it is, the idea of judging, the idea of making, how hard it is to make wise uh, evaluation and have discernment, in that context, he now tells them to pray about it. Now, a lot of us don't want to hear that. We'll just pray about it. Uh, Too simplistic. But think about it. Jesus is saying, pray about it. Go to the one who can make sense of the situation with which you are dealing. Go to the one who has the only answers for your life struggle. Go to God in prayer. The first thing we see is that God wants us to ask in verse 7. It starts so simply. Ask and, and I bet that almost anyone in here, if, if we start this verse and say, ask, you would say, and it will be given to you. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you shall find. Knock, and it will be open to you. See, Jesus wants us to ask. To those who are poor in spirit, humble enough to admit their bankruptcy before God. Jesus has laid down in the Sermon on the Mount 
some seemingly impossible standards, some seemingly impossible expectations that we read and say, how could we ever live up to that? We can't do it. It brings us right back to the very beginning of the Sermon on the Mount when he says, blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who see themselves before me as bankrupt, having nothing but only what God gives. But he he has laid down some seemingly impossible expectations, but now he assures his followers that it is possible that he has provided the way for the otherwise impossible. The things that are impossible with man are possible with God. What God calls us to do, he enables us to do by the power of the Holy Spirit. So, what are we to continually be doing? Well, it's very clear in verse 7. We're to be asking and seeking and knocking. They are present active imperatives. They are stressing the continual action, persistence. And each one, each word has a particular emphasis here. Ask means to come to God humbly, admitting that you have needs. Conscious of your need. It means to pray. And not just once, not just twice, but multiple times. 1 Thessalonians 5.17 Pray without ceasing. To everything give thanks. Living in an attitude of prayer. An attitude of going to God with your needs that you know you have, and He knows better than you. So ask. The second thing we are instructed to do, which is really the same thing but with a different, a different focus, is seek, which means to come to God pursuing His will. Pursuing His sovereign, gracious will. It means asking with sincerity. It means to to. Want whatever God wants. And then we're asked to knock. And that means to come confidently to God, persistent, keep knocking, trusting Him to provide. It's active, uh, diligent pursuit of God in His ways. Martin Luther said this about these verses. God knows we are timid, and shy that we feel unworthy and unfit to present our needs to him. We think God is so great and we are so tiny that we do not dare to pray. That's why Christ wants to lure us away from such timid thoughts, to remove our doubts and to have us go ahead confidently and boldly. It's as the writer of Hebrews says, that we would come boldly to the throne of grace to, to find help and receive mercy in time of need. Come boldly to, to God's throne. And what are we to ask for when we come boldly to that throne? What are we to be seeking? What are we to be knocking for? Well, in the context of this passage, if you stay within the context and the flow of chapter 7, we are to ask for wisdom to deal appropriately with other people, not judging them wrongly, but being wise and discerning, exercising wise evaluation skills. That's what we're to do. See, the idea is that God's children, who have been saved by grace through faith in Christ, having received forgiveness of sins, experiencing the abundant life, 
that God provides would continually pray, asking for God's wisdom, seeking his will. That's what these verses are teaching. Now we ask for other things as well, of of course. Go back to the Lord's Prayer and you see all the things we ask for. Daily bread, forgiveness of sin, and so on. Lead us not into temptation, deliver us from evil. We ask for protection, we ask for guidance. We ask for wisdom, we ask for strength in all of life's situations. And the blessing is this, and it's an amazing blessing, that God promises to answer. He expects us to ask, he wants us to ask, he asks us to ask, and he will answer. He answers your prayers. Now, if you look at verse 8, Here's the promise. For everyone who asks, receives. It's not just for the rich. It's not just for the super intelligent. It's not just for the popular. But everyone who comes to God by grace through faith in Christ, who asks, receives. And the one who seeks, finds. You get the answer you were looking for. And to the one who knocks, the door will be opened. The mystery will be solved. You'll know what to do. The big question on this verse is, what is it? What is it? If you figure out what it is, you're on your way to understanding this passage. What is it? It is whatever God knows is best for you. It is whatever God knows is best for you. We ask, he gives what is needed. You do that with your kids, don't you? They ask for something really, really crazy that you know you would never give them. You give them what they need. You usually don't run out and get that thing, that crazy thing they want that The Learjet, you don't go get them that. But you might take them on a trip to go see grandma and grandpa on a plane. Now let me tell you what it is not. It is not naming it and claiming it. Too much teaching that is focused on self. We'll take a verse like this, airlift it out of its context and say, you ask for anything. And you'll get it. Just believe. All you have to do is have enough faith to believe and you'll get it. That's wrong teaching. This is not name it and claim it. And we must be careful to ask for the right things for the right reasons. God is not a vending machine. Some of us treat him like that. You know, I do my part. And I push the button, and he is supposed to deliver on his promise. He said I would get what I want. That's a wrong view of God. That's a wrong view of your part in the picture. God is not a vending machine. He's not there just to give us what we want. Well, wouldn't it be nice? But if we gave our kids everything they wanted, think about how much trouble they'd be in right now. Solomon is a good example. Solomon. 1 Chronicles chapter 28. 
his father David. David has assembled all of Israel together at Jerusalem. He has given them instructions. He knows that God has chosen his son Solomon to to take his place. He's about to pass the baton on to his son Solomon. He has provided all that is needed, all the parts necessary to build what God said he would not build, but that his son would build. And here's what he says to his son. Verse 9, 1 Chronicles 28 and verse 9. And you, Solomon, my son, know the God of your father and serve him with a whole heart and with a willing mind. For the Lord searches all hearts and understands every plan and thought. If you seek him, he will be found by you. But if you forsake him, he will cast you off forever. Be careful now, for the Lord has chosen you to build a house for the sanctuary. Be strong and do it. What happens next? Second Chronicles chapter 1. Solomon, the son of David, establishes himself in his kingdom. The Lord was with him, we read in verse 1. The Lord made him exceedingly great. People came from far and wide to, to hear even the wisdom of Solomon. And how did he get that wisdom? Was it because he was just naturally smart and he had these great gifts? Look at verse 7. Second Chronicles chapter 1 and verse 7. In the night, God appeared to Solomon and said to him, Ask what I shall give you. Sounds familiar? And Solomon said to God, You have shown great and steadfast love to David my father and have made me king in his place. O Lord God, let your word to David my father be now fulfilled, for you have made me king over a people as numerous as the dust of the earth. And here's the request. Give me now... Wisdom and knowledge to go out and come in before this people. For who can govern this people of yours which is so great? God answered Solomon, because this was in your heart. And you have not asked possessions, wealth, honor, or the life of those who hate you. Which he could have asked for. But it would have, might, might have been self-focused. And you have not even asked for a long life. But have asked wisdom and knowledge for yourself that you may govern my people over, which I have made you, over whom I have made you king. Wisdom and knowledge are granted to you. That's how he got his wisdom. I will also give you riches, possession, and honor, such as none of the kings who had be- were before you. And none of you shall have, none after you shall have the like. Kind of goes along with Proverbs 24, verses 3 and 4 which says, by wisdom a house is built, by understanding it is established, by knowledge its rooms are filled with all pleasant and precious riches, and wisdom is knowing what to do, and and understanding is knowing how to do it, and knowledge is doing it. Solomon asked for wisdom. God gave him the ability to know what to do and the strength to do it. It's like the door being opened, the mystery being revealed. You'll see what to do, you'll know. But the key is in knowing what to ask for. In knowing what to ask for. We read, ask and it shall be given you, and we start thinking, it's Christmas. Oh, not the kind of Christmas where we celebrate the birth of Jesus. I mean the kind of Christmas where we get all these presents. We think it's our birthday. We think we won the lottery or something. 
James chapter 4 unlocks that door. James chapter 4, verses 1 through 3, asks the question, what causes quarrels, causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You've got to ask for the right reasons. And a right attitude. And a right attitude is a result of knowing the heart of God. The only way to know the heart of God is to know God. And the only way to know God is through His Son, Jesus Christ. Knowing the heart of God leads to a right attitude. David, for example, a man after God's own heart, even though he sinned grossly at times, the direction of his life was Godward, and he repented. God says in Jeremiah 29 and verse 13, if you will seek me and find me, When you seek me with all your heart, all your heart. So we need to ask for the right things and the right reasons and the right in the right attitude. And we know we sin, but we are to keep asking and keep seeking and keep knocking, acknowledging that God is the one who gives good gifts. God gives good gifts. Look at verse 9 of Matthew chapter 7. He uses an example from everyday life. Showing the blessings a parent gives to their children. Parents want to bless their kids and give them good gifts. They're not going to give them harmful things on purpose. Verse 9 says, Which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Are you really going to deceive your son and give him a stone, a rock that looks like bread, and he breaks his teeth when he tries to eat it? No. And, and, and if he asks for a fish, are you going to give him a serpent? In those days, there were some fish that looked like serpents. They, there were serpents with scales and fins, and there were fish like that. And would you really, really do that to your son? Not give him fish for food, but give him a serpent that is poisonous and might kill him? Of course you wouldn't. Parents don't do that to their kids. Parents try their best. Usually, right? Seldom do they try not to meet their kids' needs. Uh, for example, here's a need that, that anyone who's a parent in here knows that kids need. Parents are charged with the responsibility of uh, judging their kids' behavior. Speaking of judging rightly and appropriately. And under God to appropriately deal with it. That's something to ask wisdom for, isn't it? That's something to say, Lord, give, help me give them what they need. But God doesn't meet all your felt needs. Just like parents... Don't meet all their kids' felt needs when they know something else might be better and they're just using their wisdom that they have. But God, who has all wisdom and all knowledge, He meets the needs He knows you have. And He knows them perfectly, better than you know. He knows best. But the key truth on this is that we don't always know what the good gift is. We think we know what the good, oh Lord, give me that. You know, I want that, whatever it is. Whatever you're seeking, that's the one I want. We don't always know what's good for us. We think something might be good for us, but it might not be good for us. But God knows the good gift, which may not be the gift you want, but is the gift you need in the process of becoming conformed to the image of Christ, becoming more Christ-like as a believer. 
God gives good gifts. Now in the next few minutes as we uh, continue on and thinking about this passage, but specifically as we look at this last verse, I want to make four observations about this last verse, verse 11. Verse 11 is the key. Verse 11 is, is the capstone of this small passage here. And it unlocks some things that we know and some things that we sometimes don't realize. See, in verse 11, Jesus says, How much more will God give good things to those who ask him? How much more than a parent who wants to give what is good? Verse 11 says, If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? It's a promise. The statement of truth. How much more are, first of all, blessings from God given to his children? Blessings from God. We see that God gives what is good. He gives blessings. And there, there are general blessings that everybody gets. In fact, if you're not a believer here today, you have these. You have life. You're living. You're breathing. We're not propping you up. and You're not dead and we're just propping you up. You're alive today. You've been given a gift of life by God. You're breathing right now. You have the gift of, of ongoing uh, life that God is keeping you living. You have abilities. You have talents. But there are those redemptive blessings and, and this is what the good things are in context in this verse. Not the general blessings that everyone gets. These are the redemptive blessings. The salvation stuff that only believers get. Saving grace. Mercy. Forgiveness of sin. Assurance of salvation. The Spirit bearing witness with our spirit that we are children of God. Acceptance with God. Power from God. Guidance from God. God's wisdom. Just the stuff that believers get. Not by any virtue of their own, but by the, the graciousness of God. How much more will there be blessings from God for those who ask? It points us to the gospel truth. The gospel truth that Jesus lived and died, was buried, was risen, and is returning. That God who is holy made a way for us who are dead in sin and unable to save ourselves. Objects of his wrath with no ability. The God who loves us and is full of mercy sent Jesus to earth as God in the flesh to live a perfect life and die on the cross for our sins. That all who trust in Christ alone to save them apart from anything they can do are saved from the wrath of God, freed from the power and penalty of sin. That's the first good thing that God gives to those who ask. In the gospel, God restores mankind to his original purpose of reflecting God's glory. Which leads to something else that is a part of the picture in this passage and, and really every single relationship with which we are a part. One important thing we cannot ignore. That we are sinful people and we are living with sinful people. Verse 11, Jesus says, If you then who are evil. Evil here means sinful. Jesus assumes the sinfulness of human, of nature, human nature. Not all humans are as bad as they could be. 
or utterly evil in all they do. But people are self-centered rather than God-centered. And this taints all they do. We know. We live. I've hardly had anyone ever say to me, I can't believe you said I was a sinner. Everyone instinctively knows that. And basically people are sinful and it affects things. Going back to what I said at the beginning. Relationships are probably the hardest things in life and people are the problem. And we're one of the people. Right? You must take that into consideration as you think about this verse. And think about your actions and think about your prayer and think about the the opportunities you have and the, and the temptation you have to judge people wrongly or make wrong evaluations of people or go in the wrong way in some way in life. Depraved people deal with the depravity quotient on a daily basis, their own and others. It is a relational truth that everyone we must uh, associate closely with needs to be handled carefully. They're depraved. They're not as bad as they could be, but they're bad enough. And we must continually engage in a process of depravity adjustment, really, on an ongoing basis. Adjusting for people, taking it into consideration, giving room to others as we expect from them for our depravity, for their depravity. That realize that if you're a believer in Jesus, the only goodness in you is the goodness of God in Christ, and that we did not deserve the gift we received, but purely by the grace of God we were saved and lived by faith, and that we have a new heart, we are a new uh, nature, we are indwelt by God, though we still sin. Now, I know some of you in this room, dealing with that whole depravity quotient on a daily basis, You feel like you're a professional apologizer all the time, don't you? Huh? You feel like you're always saying you're sorry to your family, to your friends, to your coworkers, to your neighbors, to whoever you're you're spilling over onto because of your sinfulness. Some of you never apologize. That's another issue. But some of you feel like professional apologizers. Here's what I want you to remember. The people you're apologizing to are tainted by sin too. And their response to you sometimes is very manipulatory. They're like, I've just had about enough of this. How many times can I hear that? As if they're God. Think about it. They're tainted by sin too. Their response can be controlling and needs to be tempered. Relationships are a two-way street. Grace. Grace. With God, though, no such issues. God will never say to you, you know, I've heard that far too often lately. I've had just about enough. Why don't you just leave? It'd be easier for me that way. Never would say that to us. He never would say that. But isn't it so easy to get frustrated with people? Isn't it easy to be harsh with people and forget the grace that we've received? It's easy to focus on other people's sins and not our own. But a realistic glimpse of your own sinfulness And a a realistic glimpse of God's holiness changes everything. Perspective is built. Isaiah got it in Isaiah chapter 6. He got a clear view of God. And he confessed, I am a man of unclean lips. I am ruined. I am undone. 
Because I am a man of unclean lips and I live among a people of unclean lips. And how do I know this? Because my eyes have seen the king. My eyes have seen the Lord. Oh, I see the difference. Let me say this. If you have not yet come to faith in Christ, it is not because of an intellectual issue. You aren't smart enough to outsmart God. You might be smarter than every person in this room, but you are not smart enough to outsmart God. It is always a moral issue. It's, it's something you're afraid of and you don't want to admit. You're afraid of having to deal with your own sin. You're afraid of losing control. You're afraid of the unknown. So were all of us, right? Those who are saved by grace through faith in Christ, we were afraid of those same things too. We didn't want to face it. We didn't want to deal with it. Deep down, you know you need God even to breathe and you ignore it. And all I can say is this, life with Jesus is so much better and joyful than life without him. It's like night and day. If you come to faith, here's what's going to happen. The spiritual blindness that Satan kept you in will be removed. You're wrong thinking about God. You're wrong thinking about others. You're wrong thinking about yourself will be gone. You will say, I was blind and now I see. And you won't even know how it happened. You won't even know how it came about because you will believe where you didn't before and you'll know the difference because God was working on your heart. God was letting you know he loves you. God was wooing you to himself in his grace, extending grace to to your undeserving soul and you respond all because he loves you. Think about it. Think about it. There's another thing, a third thing that this passage in verse 11 points to And it goes along, goes right along with the fact that we have blessings from God, salvation blessings from God. We have the the situation of living with sinful people as sinful people. But it points to this fact that God's plans cannot be thwarted. You're asking, you're seeking, you're knocking, and, and you're sinning, and you're repenting, and you're being reconciled, and God's plans cannot be thwarted. Human sin hinders but does not thwart the purposes of God. He works all things together for good. Romans 8, 28. So pray, acknowledging that he is sovereign, that he is in control, that he knows everything, that he knows what he is doing. But we live with regrets, don't we? If only I would have responded differently, things would be different. Maybe not. Maybe not. How many moments do you want back? Just this past week, how many moments do you want back? None of them are coming back. But God is sovereign. And while he doesn't excuse your sin, he doesn't excuse my sin, he uses us in spite of us and is unfolding his plan even as we speak. This very moment, he is unfolding his plan. He is sovereign. How awesome and powerful is God? He uses the worst human sins which cause so much misery and pain and grief to so many people inflicted by humans upon humans. But he uses those things to work for his glory. And we don't know how. But he does. So daily struggles in in parenting, in marriage, in family life, in work, in school, 
coupled with things like loneliness and depression and, and doubt and disease and sickness and suffering. Well, in the midst of all those, we need God's tender comfort, don't we? We need God's tender comfort. In all these things, and what does 2 Corinthians chapter 1 tell us? That the God of all comfort comforts us in all of our affliction so that we can comfort others who are in any affliction by the comfort with which we were comforted by God in Christ. But we also need to see the other side of the picture that we find ourselves asking why. Why do I have this illness? Why do I have this handicap? Why is this relationship so hard? Well, a deficient worldview will see God as someone here only to make life better. You put the coin in, you press the button, you get the answer. Ask, and I'm going to get anything I want. Seek, and I'll get it. Knock, and it's going to be there. That's not life. That's not the kind of biblical life that God calls us to. A deficient worldview will see God as only someone who is there to make life better, but that will fail. That will fail you because that is not what always happens. People don't get better sometimes. People die. Tragedy strikes. Disaster happens. And a worldview that sees only God as a problem solver only prays that way. God, just fix it. Fix it. Get it out of the way so I can be comfortable. Right? A worldview that sees God as only a problem solver, resentment will, will, will grow in you because you've only been told half the story. That's only half the story. Sure, God solves problems, but pain is a daily reality. Relational issues are a daily reality. Wanting to judge people wrongly is a daily reality. Wanting to, to uh, go, uh, go off a, in anger on someone is a daily reality. Wanting to lie or cheat or steal is a daily reality we never had to be taught to do. Pain is a daily reality, but so is joy in Christ. 2 Corinthians 6.10, we are sorrowful, yet always rejoicing, always rejoicing. So if you only expect relief and no relief comes, is God not good? He is righteous in all his ways. He is kind in all his deeds. Psalm 145 and verse 17. When no relief comes, God is still in control. God is still sovereign. God is still wonderful. God is still loving. And he is working a plan involving so many intricate details and so many different pieces, you wouldn't believe it if you heard. You wouldn't comprehend. But he is working all things together for good. Everything together for good. As Job, the man who went through the most we could ever imagined, he said in Job 42 in verse 2, no purpose of God's can be thwarted. That man said that. Last thing. It's the biggest and best truth of all. It's the greatest gift that will ever be given when asked for, when sought after, when knocked for. It's the Jesus thing. And you see it in Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2.
Verse 3, do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility of mind consider others as more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. How could you do that? Sinful as we are. Well, verse 5, have this mind in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a servant. Being found in the appearance as man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. Death on a cross. Death on a cross. He voluntarily laid aside his privileges as God to serve us, take upon himself our sin. 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 15, he died for all that they who live should no longer live for themselves, but for he who died and rose again on their behalf. The key to understanding Matthew seven eleven is found in Luke 11. Let's go there. Last place we'll go today. Luke 11. Uh, it's a parallel passage. Jesus is praying. And he finishes. And, and his disciples say, teach us to pray, Lord. And you see the Lord's prayer. Then he talks about being persistent in prayer. And then he says, in verse 9, here's what I'm going to tell you. Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. Same words. For everyone who asks receives, the one who seeks finds, the one who knocks it will be open. Same words. What father among you, if a son asks for a fish, will, will instead of a fish give him a serpent? And if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion. A little different there. In verse 13, if you then who are evil, same words, know how to give good gifts to your children, same words, how much more will the heavenly father give, same words, the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? Different word than good things. The Holy Spirit. Abba, Father, will give the Holy Spirit. You look in Jewish literature and you'll see that no Jew would dare ever address God as Abba. In that homespun word, that homestyle word, Abba, you wouldn't do it. You wouldn't think of it. And here Jesus is saying, uh, address me this way. And your father, your Abba, will give you the Holy Spirit. What is good is for believers and it's for those who have yet to believe. How? Those who have yet to believe need the Holy Spirit in their life or else nothing's going to happen. That's what you need to ask for in faith. You need life in Christ. That's what you need if you don't know Jesus. What does the Holy Spirit do? He convicts the world, those who are not believers, of sin, righteousness, and judgment. What does he do in the life of believers? He leads us into all the truth. He guides us. He protects us. He gifts us. And he empowers us for living. So you can, by the Spirit's empowering, respond appropriately to God, believing, and then following him, and to others, loving them. It doesn't guarantee that other people will respond the same way. But that's not your concern. Your concern is doing what is right in God's sight. Let's pray. Lord God, we we do want to do what is right in your sight, Lord. We do want to have a life that pleases you. Lord, I pray for anyone right now who, who hears these words and still has no faith in you. I pray, Lord, you'd open their minds, open their hearts, draw them to yourself so that they would respond and that they would know this joy in you. Lord, for those of us who do know you, we pray for your Spirit's empowering. We pray asking for your wisdom, seeking your will, and help us, Lord, to do it continually. 
We know, Lord, that all of our relationships are, are tainted on a continual basis. And, and we want to be a countercultural that lives and thinks differently. We want to live with our new heart and our new life. The healthy view of you that leads to a healthy view of life. Lord, Lord, help us. We pray in Jesus' name.